We're going to continue our study of Revelation 17, 18, and part of 19, this one huge section of the book that comes right before the Lord's return under the title, The Fall of Babylon and the Exaltation of the Bride. We're going to be in several places in the book of Revelation. That probably shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Uh, But we're actually going to be in chapter 14. I'll just tell you for the first verse, but we're not going to look at any one passage for very long but uh, there's, there's so much happening in Revelation that sort of connects at a crossroads in chapter 17, and that's why we're going to take a little bit of time to look at that. You've noticed probably in, in uh, following through the book of Revelation through this series, reading it on your own, that there's a general chronology of events in the book of Revelation as a whole. Some try to deny that there's any chronology there, that everything's just symbolism and pictures and that sort of thing. It does not seem to be the way we read literature. It doesn't seem to be the way Revelation wants to be read. There is a chronology here, but John often does jump backwards or forwards in the storyline to help us appreciate more fully what is happening. He jumps ahead to the image of the final return of the Lord. In fact, I remember even just preaching through the seven churches at the very beginning of this series. I'm embarrassed to say how long ago that was, where I, 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 I made a comment one uh, Sunday morning that it seems like we're always in chapter 19 where we're reading about the return of the Lord because that return is the climax of the book and it connects with so many other passages. John is, is jumping there as he records this vision. And then he goes, back in time often to give us a bigger context. And sometimes he zeroes in and focuses on part of the story. And you can relate to this kind of narration if you've ever read an epic novel, for instance, like The Lord of the Rings. You might be reading a chapter that follows the main storyline of Frodo and Sam's adventures, finding their way through mortar to Mount Doom to cast the one ring to rule them all into the fire. And that's the main storyline. But then in the next chapter, you're not reading about Sam and Frodo anymore. Tolkien takes you back to find out what's happening at the same time in the city of Minas Tirith as they prepare for Sauron's attack. And another chapter, what's happening to bring the riders of Rohan to their aid. And at one point, there are four, maybe even five, if memory serves, different storylines that are all going in the different chapters. And finally, they all converge together in the climax. And this is similar to the way that John records the events that he sees and hears. For example, after the main judgments are described in chapters 8 and 9, chapter 10 announces that the dramatic end will finally come as soon as the angel sounds the seventh trumpet. If you had never read Revelation before, you'd be thinking, what are all these other chapters? Because it sounds like the whole thing's about to be over. And, and that's the way it's, it's, it's acting as you read it. So we expect that the next final trumpet and the next verses is going to announce and, and, and the, the return of the Lord is going to come. But instead, in chapter 11, John describes how during the time period, God will raise up witnesses to call his own people, the Jews, to repentance before it is too late. And finally, at the end of the chapter, the seventh trumpet blows the final trumpet, or the seventh angel blows the final trumpet, and there is a great anthem of praise in heaven about the final judgment of the Lord and Jesus taking his throne and his kingdom, lightning and hail and earthquake, all the things happening that you read about in the very last bold judgment, all takes place there at the end of chapter 11. When we turn to chapter 12, John 
goes back to focus on Satan's attack against the Lord and his people, starting with the war that was raging against Jesus himself during his earthly ministry. So he's going way back. And then his attack on God's chosen people, the Jews, finally in chapter 13, his attack on believers during the tribulation period. But then in chapter 14, we see these faithful believers who have been killed in the tribulation period gathered with the Lamb in heaven. And we realize that God ultimately rescues his people every time. Then in the second part of chapter 14, the scene shifts and John is shown that before the Lord finally judges the earth and returns, these three angelic witnesses are sent into the earth as the final warning to all that the end is coming and the Lord is going to return and everyone had better repent and turn to him or it will be too late. Now, the second angel's warning in this section, I'm going to remind you of that right here in chapter 14 because it connects with what we're reading about in chapter 17 where the second angel flies throughout the whole earth calling fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That is the focus of chapter 17, 18 and part of 19, this fall of Babylon. So after this, chapter 15 and 16 describe the absolute final judgments, the bold judgments that come upon the earth at the climax of which the Lord breaks through the sky, returns to conquer his enemies and establish his kingdom. So we finish chapter 16 and we expect chapter 17 then to be the description of Jesus's return. But that's not what we find. Like I said a second ago, we instead find this long section beginning in chapter 17 that circles back again. So we can take a closer look at one destruction, the destruction of this great city called Babylon. And this continues all the way through 18 and on into 19, where we find the counterpart to Babylon, this wicked woman. We find her counterpart, which is the Lord's exalted bride. And that is the section we're dealing with right now in our series. So I'm setting here chapter 14, verse 8, which I just read for you alongside of chapter 17, the opening words. Notice the the connection here. Chapter 17 begins, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. That second angel warns of this. He warns of what's about to happen that John circles back here to focus on because it's so important to the narrative. He doesn't want us to miss this. I should say what the Lord is trying to show him is so important to the Lord for us to know that he gives John this part of the narrative. So Revelation 14, 8 and Revelation 17, 18 and 19 are all talking about the same thing. Babylon the Great, who is called in chapter 17, the great prostitute. But later on in chapter 17, as we've seen, She is identified as a city. The woman represents a city. In fact, I'll put 17, 1 through 2 up above and and, and show you 17, verse 18. Uh, He says, the woman you saw, the prostitute, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And without taking time to comb over what we covered last week, because that's that's always the the fear is, is... 
I, I never seem to get started in the sermon until halfway in the, the time because I feel like we, we got to review and catch up so we're all on, on the same page. But without combing over in detail what we covered last week, we saw that Babylon, that the name Babylon is a kind of code or symbol that was being used by God's people in the first century. 1 Peter 5.13, for instance, where, where Peter calls Rome Babylon. It stands for the wicked city or empire that ruled over them on earth as they were waiting for the Lord to return, conquer that kingdom, and establish his righteous reign over the earth. In the first century, that city, that ruling government was Rome. We're not sure what it's going to be in the last day. Some, I told you, have made the argument that it will be the United States. Let's say it were the United States for a second. Babylon would be Washington, D.C. When we refer to Washington, we don't mean the actual city. I mean, we could if we say, hey, let's take a trip to Washington and see the Smithsonian. Okay, it's a great vacation because it's all free uh, to go in there, and it's amazing, uh, amazing history and, and so forth. But we don't say Washington in, in conversation all the time to refer to the city. Sometimes we're talking about the government, we just say, yeah, this is what they, 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 they decided in Washington. And that means the government that oversees all of the country. So when the woman in the, ver- in, in, in the vision is said to be a city, Babylon, it likely means a city that represents a governing influence, just like to say Rome meant the whole Roman empire. And again, we do not know what city or governing influence it will actually be in that last day. I don't know. Can I say that this though? I'm not, this is not a conspiracy theory or anything like this, okay? Um, he's like, I knew he'd finally get there, you know, and tell us, you know, start, start naming things. I, I was thinking about it a lot this week though. I don't know of a reason that it couldn't be Washington in the end. The United States, the kinds of things we realize about this city in chapter 17 and especially in chapter 18 could certainly happen here in this country if the tribulation period uh, has not, has left this side of the planet intact by then. But what we do know for certain is that this influence or government that is perhaps represented by a major city will have influence over the entire, the entire world. She will be unbelievably wealthy. We'll see that in chapter 18. She will be able to entice and influence other kings with her wealth. And she is called a prostitute not only because It will be a time of great immorality, but more specifically because she will lead the world away from any devotion, from any thought of devotion and loyalty to God and his son, Jesus Christ. Lead them away from that. The entire world will seek the affluence and prestige of this woman, this city, this governing influence, and they will worship at her feet Well, at the same time, these people under her influence will delight in finding and killing anyone who worships Jesus Christ. That's what John means starting in verse 3 of chapter 17 when he says that the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. That's her great wealth. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. 
And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, as I've said both times we've been in these chapters so far, this is our our third time in journeying through these chapters. Our task in reading the prophecy is not to haggle over all of the particulars or get caught up in the sensational elements of the narrative, fascinating as they are. But there is a way to read this text as well as the rest of Revelation that allows these divine words to accomplish what the Lord wants to accomplish through the prophecy in our lives, what it's intended to do, namely to encourage the Lord's suffering people or the people who are wondering what's ahead, what's going to happen, and they're looking nervously at events in the world to assure them that they will be vindicated in the end and that God is in complete control of what is going on. And in this part of the prophecy of Revelation in particular, we can discern several appropriate responses that we should have to this prophecy that allows this ministry to happen in our lives. We've been focused on the first of these responses, which is simply be wise. The call to be wise. It's in chapter 17, verse 9, where he says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. Last week, we considered only this first point, this first response. And I'm afraid that we are only going to consider this first response again this morning. But there's a lot to be wise about in these chapters, okay? So I need one more uh, time to to talk about this. I described wisdom last week as a kind of dot-to-dot puzzle where you move your pencil from one numbered dot to the next until the right picture appears. So wisdom is having more than dots, more than the evidence. It is also knowing how to connect the evidence to form the right picture. And when we read through Revelation, we discover that the Lord gives us some evidence, and sometimes he tells us exactly how to connect the dots to form the right picture. But he doesn't always give us all the evidence and he doesn't always explain explicitly how to connect the dots that we have. So we have to be wise about how to read the prophecy, sticking to the evidence and the explanation that the Lord has chosen to give to us while appreciating the fact that as soon as we venture beyond this, our picture may not be as accurate as we think. So with that in mind, I'm going to pick up our study of this chapter by focusing our attention not on the great prostitute Babylon, which we talked about last week. I'm going to focus our attention on the beast that she rides. Because about half of the chapter is taken up with the subject of this beast. So verse 3 of chapter 17, John sees this woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now, we've already met this beast earlier in Revelation, in chapter 11, in the story about the two witnesses who will be sent to prophesy on the earth during this time. If you want to turn back a few pages in your Bible, I'm going to go back to chapter 11 and look at just one single verse where the the beast is mentioned. In verse 7, it says, when the two witnesses, when, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This is the first mention of the beast in Revelation. And what we find out basically here are two things. First of all, the beast has come from a place 
in this translation, and maybe your translation as well, a place that it's called the bottomless pit. That's how it's translated here in the ESV. In the Greek language, the text literally reads, the beast coming up from the abusas. That's how we pronounce it in Greek. In English, we pronounce it the abyss. There's so many words that you say in English that actually are Greek words. They're just spelled a little differently. The abusas or the abyss, that's all it says. He's coming up from the, the abyss. And the abyss, is, the abyss is not literally bottomless. It simply means a place that is so deep you can't fathom it. Now, what this abyss is, I will say a little bit more in a few minutes. There's one other thing that I want you to see about the beast here, and that is that he comes up from the abyss to make war on the two witnesses and kill them, which means that this beast stands against the proclamation of the truth and seeks to destroy the messengers, God's witnesses. Those are the two basic things that we see about this beast in that verse. But the beast appears again in chapter 13. We learn so much about him in chapter 13. In fact, I'm going to try to rush through this really quickly and just highlight a few things that will help us in chapter 17. Because I've already preached through this chapter in the sermon. Several of them are available online about chapter 13. It's fascinating what, 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 what it says here. And we're not going to examine everything again here right now, but there are a few important highlights that I think help us make sense out of chapter 17. John says in Revelation 13:1, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. I want to stop there for just a second. At the end of chapter 12, John says that the dragon, who, who Revelation says is Satan, we don't have to guess who that is, the dragon, Satan, the devil, stands on the shoreline. And the idea here is that the, the dragon is calling forth out of the sea this beast. And later in chapter 13, he calls forth another beast who later the, the, the revelation, revelation calls, it the, calls him the false prophet, okay? Now, the, John is being told, you're seeing a vision here, that the beast represents something and the, the second beast that comes out of the, of the earth represents something else. Together, you may remember, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet form an unholy trinity. And we talked about this quite a bit back when we were in this chapter. They function as a kind of trinity. The dragon acts like God the Father as the decision maker in the trinity. Well, the beast carries out the will of the dragon like the son carrying out the will of the father. And the false prophet causes the world to worship the beast and the dragon. He's like the Holy Spirit figure pointing back to the father and the son. And notice that this beast has 10 horns, it says in this chapter, just like in chapter 17, and seven heads with seven diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. A lot of connection. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. The animals named here go back to Daniel's vision of the beast back in Daniel 7. It's a different vision that Daniel has but there's similarity that connects it to that vision. And we went back to Daniel and we worked through this chapter and showed the connection there. I'm not going to take time to do that right now. But I do want you to notice this. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, which means a wound you're going to die from. But its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast in other words, this beast will be killed, or at least it will look like he's dead. And it will rise again. 
And if he is the second person of the Trinity, mimic of the, of the Trinity, he, here's a resurrection of the beast. So therefore, verse 4 says, they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? I mean, we've never heard of someone dying and rising again. How could you possibly fight against somebody like this? And verse 5 says, the beast was given a, a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years, mainly the second half of the seven-year tribulation period. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. In other words, to kill them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. So there are several truths about this beast. He will rule over many people. He blasphemes the name of God. He wants to be worshiped. And he will pursue genuine believers in Christ and cause them to be killed in order to keep his power and his influence. But you also notice that this account says, John says here, the beast is allowed to make war against the saints. I want you to keep that in mind. Just park that over to the side for a few minutes. He's allowed. Even though he's very powerful, he has Satan's authority he must still be granted permission from God the Father in order to act out what comes into his mind. Now, let's take what we learn here from these other chapters and return to Revelation 17, where John also describes this beast as having seven heads and ten horns. We're going to pick up the reading again, starting in verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And he's going to talk about the beast now for a while, and then he'll get back to the woman for just a little bit. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit, there it is again, and go to destruction. Now, when John says the beast was and is not. It's, it's a cryptic way of referring to what we read about in chapter 13, that the beast received a mortal wound, but survived. He should have died, or he did die, or everybody thought he was dead at least, and then he wasn't dead. He came back to life. And from John's perspective and from ours, he is about to rise from the abyss. In other words, in the future, he is going to come out of the abyss which means that his rise is in the future. Again, it says the bottomless pit in this translation. It's simply the word abusas or abyss. That's the same word you're looking at there. It means a place that is so deep that it's unfathomable. You, you can't fathom it. You can't plumb its depths. The depth is mind-boggling. I want to say just a few words about this abyss. When the word abyss or abusas is used to speak of something in the physical realm that is on planet earth, it's often used, in fact, mostly used to refer to the depths of the sea. 
Especially thinking back in that culture, when they thought of something that was really deep, not having the kind of craft that can go under the water and actually test, test the depth and actually experience what it's like to be down there, they thought of that as deep, deep kind of, 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 of something very, very deep. And they would use this word bottomless or fathomless to talk about the depth of the sea. In fact, God caused the dry land to appear in the creation. But before that, Genesis 1-2 says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the abyss. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But the word is also used to speak of a place in the spiritual realm. In, in other words, the, the other side. The, 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 what I would sometimes call, like C.S. Lewis does, the real world that makes this just shadows. In the, the, the spiritual realm, in the scriptures, it appears to be a place where fallen angels and demons and demon-like creatures are imprisoned or kept from coming upon the earth where they would torment humankind. When Jesus cast out the demons from the man in Luke 8, the demons begged Jesus not to command them to go back to the abyss. Remember that? So he said, okay, I'll let you go into the swine. Now, I do not know what dark, foreboding image is in your brain when you think of the, the abyss or what you might have grown up hearing as the bottomless pit. I know as, as a young uh, boy, I had all kinds of horrible images in my mind about that place. And, and probably we can't imagine the horrors that it really is. But we shouldn't think of it as this narrow pit that just goes down forever. The pit or shaft of the, of the bottomless pit, as they call it, is likely just the opening of the abyss so that it can be opened or closed. Then the abyss widens out the further it goes down. In Revelation 9, the demon locusts, remember them? They arise out of the abyss. It's open so that some of these creatures who are kept there can come out on the earth and they do great damage. And two times in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it refers to the pit of the abyss that was opened, and, and they came out of the pit. But later in verse 11, it says that they simply came out of the abyss. And so what it's saying here is that there's this shaft, perhaps, that goes down that's a narrow opening so that, so that it can be easily opened and closed. And without going into further detail, the angel or the king over the creatures of the abyss, as we read the scripture, appears to be Satan himself. So, that's just a, a little crash course on the bottomless pit. Okay, it's going to come up again because Satan himself is bound for a thousand years in this place. In chapter, in, in chapter uh, 20, uh, he is the king of it, and yet he is going to be bound in it for a thousand years so that he cannot work his madness on earth during the time of the millennial kingdom. We'll get to that uh, eventually, hopefully before the millennial kingdom comes. Now, in Revelation 11, verse 7, it says that the beast comes up from the abyss. And in 13, 1, it says the dr dragon calls him up from the sea. And in 17, 8, he comes up from the abyss. There's no pit mentions, just abyss, sea, and abyss. It's possible that it's just saying that he calls him up from the sea, the depths of the sea. I happen to think he's talking about this abyss, this in the spiritual place, but that is something that we can decide later on. Either way, the beast appears to be this world leader who is identified in other parts of the New Testament as the Antichrist. 
He is either a demon in human form or a demon-possessed person. Now, let's keep reading from the middle of verse 8. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And so far, this sounds very similar to the description of the beast in chapter 13. But now the angel gives us some additional information about this beast. He says in verse 9, this calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. We don't have to wonder, what are these heads? What are these horns? He's going to tell us. He's going to tell us how to connect the dots. He says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was, in his, uh, that was and is not, it is an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven kings, and it goes to destruction. Now, what does all of this mean? What are these mountains and these kings represented by these seven heads? Well, the city of Rome is famously said to be built on seven mountains, but a mountain was often used anyway to refer to a seat of government. I mean, they would build cities uh, and, and they would try to build them on, on high places because it would be protection from the enemy. And usually they would put the most important thing, like the government, you know, and, and their, their best temple would be kind of in the high place. And so a mountain, and you, you see this in Old Testament prophecy in, in several verses we could refer to this morning. Uh, and the mountain refers to government. So the seven heads are actually seven governments represented by seven kings. Which seven kings? Because notice he gets very specific here. He says, from John's perspective, five kings have fallen. One king is living in John's day, and one has yet to come, and then the beast, or the Antichrist, will be an eighth. Well, we're not certain exactly which kings the angel refers to, but if we are to connect the historical and biblical dots, here is one example. I'm not telling you this is gospel truth here, okay? I'm just showing you one example that seems to be maybe one of the better ones that might work out who these uh, kings actually are. If we start with the Roman emperors who were a threat to God's people, especially those who persecuted believers, we would start with the Roman emperor Caligula, and then Claudius, and then Nero. We could skip over the kings who tried to reign after Nero. That was a disaster. They, it was just, everything was in shambles. And uh, some historians debate whether or not they actually ruled. And so trying to look back and to be discerning and say, are these the kings they're talking about? You could actually set those three aside. A lot of commentators have, have pointed out. Which means that king number four then uh, would pick up with Vespasian, and then number five would be Titus. These five were all dead and gone by the time the Lord appeared to John and asked him to write the prophecy. If John is writing in the 90s, which, which the evidence points to the fact that he's writing at the, at the end of the century, and we, so we suspect that's true, the, the, the emperor who is reigning in John's day is Domitian, so he would be king number six. So we can't say for certain that these are the five kings 
that the angel has in mind, but it does seem more likely that number six we can identify if John is writing in the 90s. That's Domitian. And since the time of the Roman emperors, the world really has not seen one person like this rise to rule the whole world, though many have tried. But there is a seventh, a ruler yet to come. His rule will be global once more. I put there to be determined. That's not from God's perspective, okay? That's from our perspective. God knows who it is. We don't. I should say TBA, to be announced. But God knows who this person is. What we do know is that John says this ruler must remain, it says in the text, for a little while. In other words, his reign will be cut short. Now, why is the reign of the seventh king cut short? It probably has to do something with the rise of the eighth king, the coming of the Antichrist. Again, if we go back to chapter 17, verse 11, it says, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven kings and it goes to destruction. In other words, the beast, whoever this ruler is whom Satan raises up that we commonly call the Antichrist, this beast stands in the tradition of those earlier kings that greatly persecuted believers. It is an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven. In other words, he carries on their tradition. And ultimately, this beast goes to destruction because in chapter 19, when Christ comes, he destroys all of his enemies and the beast and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire a thousand years before Satan is cast in. They're judged right away. But notice that verse 10 says, the seventh king must reign for a little time. His reign is cut short because perhaps the beast vanquishes him from the throne. Maybe there's even a battle and this is where the beast is wounded and where he rises again and the world goes after him and they establish him and follow him as the eighth king. I don't know. This is just speculation. You wonder how all this is going to actually go down. So we can't say for certain, but this is where we have to be wise and know where the dots are, what we've been given, what we haven't been given, and how to trace them. But it keeps us wondering and looking on the horizon for a world leader that everyone is willing to follow. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think as believers in Christ, believers in the scripture, it's, it's easy for us to start looking and wondering and talking Because we believe this. It's going to come eventually, and it could come very soon. And so all of the people involved in this prophecy may be alive and breathing on planet Earth right now. And and they may be even older than just out of high school. You know, it could be very close. We don't know. But a seventh king that will be followed by the reign of the beast will come. Now, what about the ten horns? The angel tells John in verse 12, and the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So the seven heads are the succession of seven kings historically, but the 10 horns are kings or rulers of nations on earth during the tribulation period. They will rise to power and prominence and together they will rule with the beast and do his bidding. We don't know what kings or governments it will be. If, if it happened right now and the beast were reigning, the top 10 governments in the world are United States, China, Russia, Germany, UK, Japan, France, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab uh, uh, Emirates. 
Those are the three most wealthy, influential countries, according to the last statistics I read right now. But those may not be the superpowers at all. After all of the judgments that Revelation describes begin to come upon the earth, the wars and the famine and disease and waters being corrupted and vegetation burning and millions of people dying, what countries are going to emerge as the 10 superpowers left standing in that day? We have no idea, but we do know that they will be in lockstep with the beast, the Antichrist. Their reign will be a single hour, meaning it'll be a brief time, possibly because the reign of the beast itself will be relatively short. But they will be with one mind with him and they will let him control their authority and their power. Now, giving their power to the beast and reigning together, what do they do with him? What do they devise to accomplish? Verse 14 tells us, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. This is another example in Revelation where He cuts to the end. He cuts to the climax of the story. This is no doubt a reference to chapter 19, the second part of it, where Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's written on Him and his saints are with him, and there is a great slaughter of the enemies of Christ, and the beast and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. But there's something else that these kings and the beast do with one mind, and that is in verse 16, if we can skip down there. Coming back to this woman, this prostitute, the symbol for the influence in the world that draws people away from Christ, it says in verse 16 that the 10 horns that you saw they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will despise her. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Completely destroy. This is why Babylon falls. This is why we have the lament over Babylon, which takes up almost every word of chapter 18. In fact, I want to just read the first 10 verses of chapter 18. So we can start getting a taste of what we're going to begin to next week uh, about this. We're going to go and and look at this lament and what it means. He says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become for a dwelling place. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And she, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, 
and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Torment, mourning, burned up with fire, destruction in a single hour. In my mind, I say, is this a nuclear attack? Are they going to take them out that way? I don't know. What was John seeing if he saw a vision of this? But this is the destruction of Babylon from the allied attack of the beast and the 10 kings upon this single city or group of cities, whatever embodies the end time Babylon that holds sway over the world. And it is complete and it is devastating. Now, The question is, why would they do this to this Babylon? Why would these kings in alignment with the beast who bring the world's armies against the lamb and attempt to destroy him at the end and utterly destroy his people, turn and utterly destroy another power who equally hates the lamb and wants to destroy his people? These are both the enemies of God and his people, and one destroys the other. We could speculate about the jealousy of the beast or the fact that the prostitute was getting too much attention and he wanted all of the worship. But here's a place where the Lord shows us exactly how to connect the dots because he tells us why they destroy the prostitute. Chapter 17, verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. This is God's judgment. He may be using other powers to accomplish it, just as he moved Assyria against the 10 other tribes of Israel, just as he moved Babylon against Judah, just as he moved Medo-Persia against Babylon. Uh, In in the Old Testament prophecies, uh, God Uh, takes the axe of Babylon and uses it to chop down the tree of his people and judge them. And then he judges the axe because of what they did to his people. And you catch what he says in chapter 18, verse 8, she shall be burned up with fire for mighty is the Lord God who judged her. In fact, if you look closely at this verse 17, It is not only the attack on Babylon that God puts into the hearts of the beasts and these 10 kings, but their being of one mind with the beast and handing over their royal power is also something that God has brought about. In other words, God has been in complete control of all these events from the very beginning. He even put thoughts into the minds of created beings so they would make decisions toward his wise and determined end. So the words of God are fulfilled. What words? Words of Daniel, words of other Old Testament prophets, the words of this prophecy itself. Satan, the beast, the false prophet, this unholy trinity, the kings of the earth, they all think that they are plotting, planning, scheming the defeat of the lamb. But the entire time, they are simply playing into the hand of God Almighty who has already promised 
how all of this is going to go down. I said toward the beginning of our time this morning that there is a lot to be wise about in these chapters. We have to be wise about the evidence of the end time that God allows us to read here and careful not to go beyond the evidence. We have to be wise in how we exercise discernment in connecting the dots. We have to focus on the message that God wants us to take away and not get caught up in the sensationalism, even though it's really fun and and interesting to think about how it might all happen. But I think there's something else that jumps out of these pages this morning as we read that we need to be wise about as we process our world with the scripture. And that is the complete and sovereign control of our God who is moving all the world events ultimately to his glory and our good. We see it in what God, uh, what, what power and control God allows the beast to have in Revelation. We see it in what God places into the minds and hearts. We see it in the fact that God claims ownership of events that happen in the earth that seem to be happening because of other people. And yet God said, no, this is what I have brought about. And we know this. We affirm it. I mean, if we came in and everybody took a pop quiz this morning on the sovereign control of God in our lives, we may even all score 100% on that quiz. But when we see certain events in the world, such as an act of despicable violence, of the killing of schoolchildren, and power-hungry governments invading countries, and major cultural shifts where you are applauded for embracing a path of darkness, you're literally applauded and given seats in, in universities and lifted up above everybody else for embracing a path of wickedness and you are put down and canceled for embracing a path of light, even though historically many people in our country have embraced that path. When we're calling good evil and evil good, when we see wicked and senseless things happen in our world and sometimes tragic events in our own lives, our faith in the loving, wise, and powerful control of God can be shaken. We are tempted to think that the situation is not under control because the people who commit sin and violence, for instance, are going to do what they are going to do and we can't stop them. The young man who killed the children this past week, they said that there were disturbing messages on his social media page. And there are so many of these kinds of messages on social media pages, nobody can keep up with how many come in every day and investigate everyone. Apparently, there were several protocols in the place in the Uvalde school that, that they were not following. People are criticizing whether or not the police followed the right protocol and so forth. It goes all the way to the governor. He's pointing fingers. And it's just one example. How can we possibly be aware of every person and what every person's going to do and what every person thinks? And if somebody wants to do something wrong, he's going to figure out a way to do it. So how can we know that we have the right protections in place that are all going to be followed? We can't know. We can't know about a lot of things. So we can either despair or we can make sure we are walking closely with the one who does know. We cannot know how God allows people to make decisions and yet guides the events of the world 
even guiding events that are brought about by sinful human decisions so that God's holy, unbreakable word is fulfilled exactly as he said it would and so that God's people are strengthened and nourished and shepherded on their way to glory. We don't know how God does it, but we know that he does it. And it should encourage us and strengthen our resolve to live for Christ and to share him when we look out nervously at this confusing mass of world events or sometimes events closer to home and realize that our God right now is relaxed, unhurried, completely composed, and unmistakably in charge. We do not always know how to connect the dots to see the exact picture that will form, but we know that whatever shape the final events will take, they are going to be brought about with precision by a good and powerful God who loves us and will be faithful to keep every promise he has made to us. Revelation teaches us this. It's about events that are going to happen perhaps way after our day. I I trust we're all going to be caught up in the rapture and then finally these events will happen. We're going to be watching them from heaven perhaps. And we'll be coming with Jesus Christ when he returns on this earth. And praise the Lord for that day. But that day, as we see God's control, even in that intense time, teaches us that if he can be in control in that time, he is certainly in control in this time. And let's believe that. And let's process our world and be the rock and hope for other people who are falling apart around us because they get scared about things and they wonder why we are bearing up. We can tell them why we are because we know the God who is bringing all these events about. And we don't understand everything he does all the time, but we know that he is doing it for his glory and our good. And let's worship him for that. Father, thank you.